Welcome to the DTB podcast for August 2022, volume 16, number 8. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about August's uh, DTB. A uh, couple of things before we get into the detail. Uh, we received a, a very helpful comment uh, on the discussion that we had last month on Inclizaran. We talked about it in our podcast. Um, many thanks to the person who messaged us. Uh, but the point that was made that it isn't always easy to find our email address. So let me give it out now at the start. It's dtb at bmj.com. Uh, and I will repeat it again at the end of the podcast, and we will make sure that it's in the notes that accompany our podcast. So if you want to contact us, you'll be able to find it. Um, and the second thing before we get to our articles is a recent press release that caught my eye. It's from the ABPI, uh, and it was about their Disclosure UK database uh, for those who aren't familiar with Disclosure UK. It's the database that records payments made by pharmaceutical companies to, well, it's to both healthcare organisations, uh, voluntary organisations and healthcare professionals. Um, it's a voluntary process and there is a means of opting out as a healthcare professional if you don't want to be named. And, and I guess the point of the press release was acknowledging that they are now seeing more healthcare professionals who've agreed to be named. And they're now up to, I think, almost 73% in 2021. It's up about 5% since 2020. Now, we have written several times about the importance of having access to uh, conflicts of interest information, declarations on payments made by pharmaceutical companies to healthcare professionals. And we've also contrasted it with the US, where it is a mandatory process. Um, so... Although we are up to 73% declarations, it's still 27% of people aren't declaring. James, what's your take on, on both kind of this, this news and, and the database in general? Yes, I, they get a B plus, I suppose, um, because it's, I mean, it's important, you know, as you said, we talk about this a lot. Um, but because almost a third of healthcare professionals are not actually giving consent for their details to be given it, it you're just left thinking well this is incomplete and i think that struck me and i hadn't really clocked this i think there are about 16000 organizations and healthcare professionals in the 2021 um, database who've sort of received funds in some way or other but each pharmaceutical company which i think there are about 139 all have their own methodology on how they report this so it's actually really quite complicated to work it out because it could well be that one pharmaceutical company deals with self-incorporated individuals in a different way from another one or attributes what they call transfers of value, which is basically money. You know, if there's an intermediate organisation organising something, some companies attribute that to the intermediate company and some attribute it to the individuals who actually ultimately get the funding. So it's all very complicated and a bit messy. And we need a mandatory system because this is to say it's something, but it doesn't really give you enough information. And it's not easy to be able to sort of compare like with like because each company is managing it slightly differently. 
And I think also the fact that it is not comprehensive means that if you're looking for something, you, if you don't find it, you're not sure if it doesn't exist. Therefore, a payment has never been made to an individual or you know have chosen not to declare it. So it's almost a worst of all worlds because you, you don't know whether you've found or not found what you're looking for. Precisely. And I just happened to be looking at a trial that was published in June and, and actually it had a list of um, conflicts of interest at the end of the trial. And I thought, OK, I'll take one of the authors of the trial and I'll look at them under disclosure and see if the two match up. And they don't match up. And that leaves me not knowing you know, why that might be. So I think because it's not mandatory, because it seems to me that although the ABPI set out sort of guidelines on on how things should be reported, because they're not mandatory, it means that there's this variability, you know, some things, and even individuals can actually decide that certain things will be disclosed and other things won't. So it is very difficult. And I think it's a start, but it's just a start. And I don't think it's going to be enough to really allow us to have true transparency, which is what we need. And also, as we pointed out last month, that um, payments to things like the all-party parliamentary groups don't appear on the database. Um, So again, there's a whole cohort of payments that you're unaware of. Exactly. And I think that might be because um, the Disclosure UK only covers HCPs, as they call them, healthcare professionals, which the ABPI defines. And although some some drug companies define it them slightly differently. I suppose all party parliamentary groups no way can define themselves as HCPs, perhaps. I don't know, but you're absolutely right. You know, you've got 16 APPGs, all party parliamentary groups, receiving £1.2 million over six years to 2012. You've got 16,000 organisations receiving £152 million Um, just in 2021. There's a lot of money here and it's there for a reason and it would be really good to understand exactly the flows that are going on so we can be absolutely clear whether someone standing in front of us at a very important meeting has got a significant conflict of interest or not. Or even as me as a patient sitting by my GP or hospital doctor wanting to know whether that doctor has an interest um, or has received payments that hopefully won't influence their decisions but would be nice to know so um yeah entirely so i think we'll keep chipping away at this one. by the way i did look you up but you're not on there uh, <laughs> so, so that's well done um unless you've just chosen not to right okay let's get on with the issue and let's start with the editorial uh, what are we talking about this month so um mike wilcock and david branford are looking back at whether there's been really any improvement in reducing psychotropic prescribing in two groups, the learning and intellectually disabled groups. So this was the the STOMP program, which stood for stopping over-medication of people with learning disabilities, autism or both, which was launched in 2016. And then in 2018, there was a parallel campaign which focused on children, which was called STAMP. Um, which stood for supporting treatment and appropriate medication in paediatrics. So we've had these two um, campaigns launched with a lot of effective um, videos, you know, lots of leaflets, protocols, booklets. Certainly most GPs will have been aware of it because CCGs were involved in in trying to push this out. And so um, David and Michael have basically looked at the data to see if there's been much improvement on that. And uh, they've used NHS digital data. Uh, And unfortunately, 
it's a disappointing result in the sense that it's quite incomplete and therefore it's quite difficult to interpret what the answer is. But it does seem as if um, there's been relatively little reduction in the use of antipsychotics um, over the last five years in this group, from about 15.7% of uh, patients being on them to 148 So um, still a lot of work to do, I think, really. And they tried to tease out that whether this was, well, you could blame it on the pandemic, we've not been seeing people, therefore all these changes would happen. But I think even taking into data into account before the pandemic, the change, there wasn't much change even then. Exactly. And I think, to be honest, th this is a very complex area. And a lot of these patients are taking drugs unlicensed, um, which have been initiated by really very tertiary centred um, consultants who, you know, are experts in the management of these children or these adults. And it's very difficult, I think, to know as a standard GP or even as a, a local psychiatrist, you know, how to address whether that's inappropriate and how to address deprescribing. I think it is a very difficult area. And is it a, is it one of these classical things that generally you leave well alone because you worry about upsetting um, a, a patient's routine and their medication without knowing what effect it might have? I think so. I mean, we have a number of patients uh, in this group, a large number of patients in this group. And, you know, these are seriously um, difficult patients. They, they often require staffing ratios of two or even four members of staff per, per person. And, um, you know, if things are steady and on an even keel, then, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. So I think it is a very difficult area. And I think the secret, to be honest, is to try not to prescribe in the first place. And I am I was reminded of the DTB Select we looked at in May, the metazapine with agitation in the elderly. Um, and what struck me, I remember, I think we talked about this at the time, was that if you looked at the placebo group, the agitation scores dropped by 10 points, even in them over the 12 weeks of the study. And I think this is the point. Very often, difficult behaviour is transitory. And if you can just weather the storm without reaching for a pill, then actually you'll get over it. But if you reach for a pill in that period and the patient then improves, you think, oh, well, that was the medication. And it may just have been that it was going to improve anyway. So it's a really difficult area. Um, one that I just think we have to just keep keep working on that and i say i think the simplest thing is to try not to prescribe in the first place and of course that's one answer to a question we don't have which is is the data reflecting people who are historically being prescribed these and continuing them but we're starting them at a much lower rate than we ever did or is it is it status quo and we know we're just continuing prescribing them to new patients as well it'd be interesting to find that out but, I, but this data doesn't tell us that not really i mean obviously there is data i think that they did compare with prescribing in the general population and that had remained stable um, at about but about 0.9%. So it just shows what a huge difference there is between um, this group of patients and the standard population. Okay, thank you. It sounds like there's plenty more work to do on that one. And perhaps we'll have another go at it later on. We'll get Mike and, and David to look at it uh, next year as well. Um, Okay, uh, next article, commentary article, uh, one that Tech and his team have put together looking at the optimised clinical trial. Do you want to talk a little bit about this one? Yeah, this is a good idea that, that sort of didn't work, but actually in not working actually is a good thing. Um, I'm 
I think that makes sense, but I'll explain. So this was a uh, UK-based study published in JAMA, where basically I think there were about 69 general practices across the UK um, recruited people aged 80 or over who had a diagnosis of hypertension, but whose blood pressure was at systolic no more than 150 and were taking at least two or more antihypertensive medications for at least 12 months. And the idea behind the study was that they were good enrolled people who might potentially benefit from reducing uh, their medication and they would stop one of their antihypertensive medications and they would see what would happen. And the outcomes they were looking for was a non-inferiority um, margin of blood pressure rising and they had secondary outcomes, which was more to do with things like quality of life and adverse effects, that sort of thing. So the idea really was, I suppose, to say, what will happen if we look at reducing the medication in patients over 80 with hypertension? That was sort of the idea. And what they found really was actually, yes, there was non-inferiority when it came to blood pressure. There was um, about 70% of patients were maintained on the reduction in medication. But the downside was there was an increased number of attendances and adverse events from um, doing that. And they couldn't demonstrate any quality of life improvements of the ones they looked at. So really what it demonstrates is there's no simple system to de-prescribing in the elderly. Um, it's not going to be possible for us to perhaps have a very simple flowchart that you can do. It really has got to be personalised medicine. It's about clinicians knowing their patients. This sort of continuity of care, I think, is really important. So interesting study, but useful, but in ways that perhaps the researchers weren't looking for in the first place. I mean, what struck me was, I mean, a couple of things that struck me was, like, okay, overall, the, you know, the difference between blood pressure control at 12 weeks wasn't significantly different between the groups. Um, the intervention group did have a slightly higher overall blood pressure, didn't it, than the usual care group. So the ones who stopped their meds did, uh, their blood pressure went up slightly. But 66 out of that group had to restart their medication. Now, you, are, you either look at that of 66 out of 265 started or something like 199 didn't restart. But um, so it depends which way you want to spin the data, I guess. Mm. I mean, that's right. I mean, I think it was a 3.4 millimetres of mercury difference in the intervention group compared with the usual care. Well, what was interesting is that, and this is the bit that, that, so for example, when they were looking at patients to do this, they noted that actually about 5% of the patients in the uh, study had orthostatic hypotension. Um, now, it'd be really interesting to know whether they stayed off their medication. Um because it's those sort of little things like, you know, if, if you've got an elderly patient whose blood pressure is dropping when they're standing up, they're surely the ones you want to look at reducing medication. So there were, there were some little hints that there might have been some useful stuff in this, but I didn't actually seem to discuss it in the main article. And the other thing was, again, I found slightly surprising was that the, and it may be because of the way the trial recruited people and... They weren't actually on that many medicines because I think it's, it was something like participants were prescribed a median of two antihypertensives and a total of four medications. So they weren't the typical somebody who's on 12 different drugs and let's see if we can stop one or two of them. This was they were on relatively few. Yeah, I was going to say the, the whole way they recruited, I mean, they, they invited, I think, 6,000 patients invited to participate, but only 700 odd attended and only... 569 eventually was sort of randomized so 
I, it's, GPs are a funny lot sometimes, and I just wonder whether GPs were up for this. And I think sometimes they get a bit concerned. They don't want to rock the boat again. So they, they sort of perhaps just cherry pick the really fit people. I don't know. It just did seem odd to me that this was a group of patients that didn't feel like the sort of patients that I would be looking to reduce um, their prescribing. But I think sometimes, you know, the Hawthorne effect is such that you can imagine that if you were a, a group of GPs involved in this study, you might start thinking about reducing medication and just want to get on with it and not put them in a trial. So it may be that actually a whole group of patients in these practices did have their medication reduced outside the trial. I don't know, it'd be fascinating to look at sort of CPRD data and see if you could actually demonstrate that. That would be quite an interesting look. And also, why did the number of appointments go up? What, what what was it that these people required? What did the people who had their medicine stopped and they attended more times, what was it they were attending for? Mm. Again, mm. So, yes, it's a starting point, isn't it? And it would be nice to have more information um, and perhaps it will spur some more research to, to try and understand it a bit more. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, and then a DTP select item this month on your least favourite drug? <laughs> Amiodarone. Oh, dear. Yes, I was, I was thinking about this and I, I sort of hadn't clocked that it was quite a new drug in the late 1980s. And that was when I did my cardiology house job. So it may be that my experience of it as a houseman doing cardiology at Barts was actually why it is my least favourite drug. But this is, this is a serious issue here, folks. So um, there are probably about 36,000 people taking amiodarone at the moment. We we know that because there were 430,000 prescriptions dispensed over 12 months to March 2022. So if you just accept that most people are on one month's prescriptions, that works out at about 36,000 people. And the MHRA have issued um, a safety update about it. And I this is this seems quite late to me because this is based on a uh, my understanding is it's based on a coroner's uh, regulation 28 letter about an episode of a patient dying from pulmonary fibrosis and pneumonia, which occurred in September 2019. But I went back and looked at the coroner's regulation 28 letters, and there was a letter in September 2013 about this from Yorkshire, exactly the same issue. Someone who'd been put on amiodarone, developed breathing difficulties and a cough. No one clocked that it was the amiodarone and the patient died. And I think, you know, if there's one thing anyone takes out of this podcast today, it is lungs and amiodarone don't mix. And it, you must warn patients if they get any sort of cough or breathlessness, they need to come, you know, be banging on your door because that drug needs to be stopped as soon as possible, if not immediately. Um, so it's we detail the other issues that the MHRA suggests. It's really important that we monitor patients as well for liver and thyroid function because that's another issue. Um, about 4% of people develop hepatitis on um, amiodarone. They also develop these issues with um, uh, crystalline deposits in the eyes that can have an impact. You know, it's a nasty drug. Thyroid is the one thing everyone sort of remembers, but actually it's the lungs that we have to be really careful with. And I think actually what's interesting since this MHRA warning came out, 
on the MHR website, they have actually produced a patient leaflet that you can give patients, which details all this and reminds them of how they should act. So I'd recommend that you just do a search MHRA for amiodarone and get those patient leaflets um, to use because we need to take those 36,000 people currently on amiodarone and make absolutely sure they all know what's going on. Because I say this is a, a nasty drug. It should only be used in severe rhythm disorders. Um, and I, uh, my criticism, if I have one, is that I think some cardiologists reach for it when they have patients who are still symptomatic in things like atrial fibrillation without really asking themselves, is this a severe rhythm disorder? Is it something which is really impacting um, on their cardiodynamics, if you like, or is it just that they have the sense of palpitations? And I don't think we should be using a drug like this just for symptomatic treatment. And, and is, uh, is amiodarone in your area treated as a specialist drug that has to be uh, initiated and clear who does the monitoring? It's an amber drug, yes. So we have obviously a system in place. I have to say the problem we have is that, that the whole shared care system has broken down since the pandemic. Um, you know, we have a very clear understanding of what should happen, but invariably what tends to happen is that a consultant will start it and then ask the GP to continue without that formal titration up, monitoring, stabilisation, and then contacting the GP and saying, are you willing to take over the management of this patient? Um, that's, that's what should happen with shared care agreements, um, but it doesn't in our area. And I think that's actually something nationally, which is a problem too. And it's just a sign of how stretched everyone is and how, to be honest, how difficult it is for secondary care to organise blood tests in the community. A lot of them have not had access to the the IT systems are needed. So it has been um, a big issue, but that's, I think it's just up to us as as GPs to just, you know, flag amiodarone up as one of those drugs that you treat with complete respect. And you know, the other learning point or reminder is its long half-life. I mean, it's... Yeah, 50 days. I'm going to just have one other moan. It's a hot day and I'm having a moan, but the MHRA, their, their advice is very poorly written. So and this is a quote from what they suggest we should do. They say, thyroid levels should be checked before starting treatment at six monthly intervals and for several months following treatment discontinuation. Now, what does that mean? If you're doing them six monthly, are they then saying that when you discontinue it, you should do it for several months? Does that mean you do it every month after you complete it? I mean, it surely doesn't. It means probably check it once again in six months' time. But it's that sort of thing where I think we've got to have absolute clarity of what the expectation is on clinicians who are treating patients. It's no good putting out advice, which is really important, but which actually makes no sense. No, that's, that's a good point. And I, and I suspect that I sometimes find it difficult to put precise um instructions out because of the, of the lack of information but you're right it just adds to the confusion um okay so bottom line is it's probably better that two people are, are double checking amiodarone than we miss it between primary and secondary care so even if it was a bit of duplication at least patients are being followed up Indeed, and you know, and there are increasingly good IT solutions going on. Um, there's is it Pincer and uh, Eclipse and all these things which which monitor our systems, but of course they won't monitor patient symptoms, and that's the problem we've got. They'll all remind us to do blood tests for thyroid, but it's patients' lung symptoms are the sort of headline we need to remember today.
Okay, thank you very much. And finally, let's look briefly at our uh, drug review this month. Last month, we, we looked at a, a drug that lowers LDL cholesterol, so inclizaran, an uh, injectable um, drug. And this month, we're looking at an oral drug, benpidoic acid. Um, what do we say about this one? <laughs> and it's another drug that lowers LDL cholesterol, but has absolutely no clinical outcomes yet to demonstrate its effectiveness clinically. So, um, yep, it's an interesting drug. It lowers LDL cholesterol by inhibiting cholesterol synthesis along the same pathway that statins work, but sort of further up the chain, if you like. It's responsible for inhibiting adenosine triphosphate citrate lyase. Um, so the studies, there are five randomized controlled trials. Two looked at using it alone or with um, ezetimibe, and three studies looked at using it on top of statin use if patients hadn't reached LDL targets. So we have five randomized controlled trials, and the bottom line is you see a moderate reduction in LDL. On top of a statin, you see a 15% further reduction in LDL. Um, to put that into context, if you've got a patient, let's say, who has an LDL level of 2.8 millimoles per litre, before they were given benpidoic acid, that would have dropped it to about 2.4 millimoles per litre. So just, a, you know, 15% often sounds better than the, the true absolute reduction you see. Um, but it does reduce... Um, LDL, it reduces it even better with ezetimibe and in patients who can't tolerate uh, statins, it seems to reduce it by as much as 36% in combination with ezetimibe. So it works at lowering LDL. Um, it has some adverse effects. Uh, hyperuricemia is one, about 4% of patients in the studies developed that. Muscle pain seemed to be a big issue. And one of the issues with benpidoic acid, it does interfere with the metabolism of certain statins, particularly simvastatin and pravastatin, and increases the levels of those. So um, there is an issue about using maximum doses of simvastatin of only 20 milligrams. Um, but as I say, the big issue here is no clinical outcomes. And we have one... RCT on safety, which lasted a year, and that's it. So we need to wait for the trials that will show us whether this is clinically beneficial to our patients. I mean, there is a trial, I think, that is, is it due to, I think it's next year. Yeah, 2023, next, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that will, uh, and that's looking at the patients with a high risk of CVD in that trial, I think. So that's, I think their average risk was 3.6% a year. So um read into that what what you will so we wait for that result before we will know what effect it has on on outcomes I and mean, a couple again a couple of things that struck me was that there are several other drugs that are licensed and do have outcome data um which makes you wonder where does this one fit in um if you've got other add-on drugs that you can try that have got, you know, proven to both reduce LDLC and have an effect on cardiovascular outcomes. Why would you go for this one? That's a question. And the other thing that always irritates me with these drugs is that they are, they've been approved by NICE, approved by Scottish Medicines Consortium with a uh, part of a patient access scheme. But of course, that is all confidential. So we don't know what level of discount 
this drug is um, being sold to the NHS at. And I still don't know why this is such a secret and, and it's not shared with with um, healthcare professionals more widely because we just don't know what cost the NHS is being charged for this drug. So it makes comparisons quite difficult. Yeah, I agree. It's such a nuisance. You go onto the NICE guidance and it's all redacted. You just think, my goodness, this is meant to be a open, transparent, you know, clinical arena. And there's a lot of black marks all over it. Very odd, very odd. So another thing that I'm struggling a little bit with all these drugs that are coming out of the woodwork for lowering LDL cholesterol is that we, we've forgotten the lifestyle. Now, I can quite understand if you've got a patient with familial hypercholesterolemia or one of these genetic things who've got very high levels of um, cholesterol who have a 50% risk of MIs in their lifetime. And I can see that in these patients, um, you know, there's going to be some benefit, one hopes, by lowering cholesterol from these drugs. But what I find difficult is that in my experience of 30 years, you'll see a patient and they'll you'll start them on a statin and their LDL will drop like mad. You think, wow, that's amazing. And then you'll see them a couple of years later and it will have gone back up perhaps halfway to where it was before. And you say, what's going on? And of course, they've stopped their diet. You know, they've just, they've just, and, and there's a bit of me that thinks, you know, all these patients, how many of them actually, if you just said to them, oh, I think you need to just tighten up your diet a little bit. You know, I bet you'd see a 15% reduction in LDL and it wouldn't be costing hundreds of pounds a month. And I think I just worry that, that we've seen this with diabetes perhaps, and we're seeing it now with cholesterol. We're just, adding medication to patients with rather, rather than talking to them about lifestyle and i just that worries me enormously In, indeed um and, and i think other people have made us a, a slightly different point but but relating to the use of these drugs which is that we talk about um the effect of lowering ldlc and reducing your risk of events but a lot of that data comes from statin trials um and we extrapolate it to assume that any lipid-lowering drug will produce the same effect. Um, but are we absolutely convinced that statins are only lowering cholesterol, or do they have other actions as well? I think you're totally right there, because look at all the studies that were done on the fibrates before statins were invented. And, you know, we really struggle to show much benefit from them. And I wondered if you took the fibrate data whether you would get that same 20% reduction in LDL. So you're absolutely right. We'll just have to wait to see what these studies show. And of course, there is an, perhaps there's a slight concern here. I don't know that if patients are put into a study, they might start taking their statins a bit more carefully and they might reduce their diet a bit more. So, you know, the Hawthorne effect again, perhaps we will see reductions in LDL cholesterol, but it may just may not be nothing to do with the, uh, the drugs. Who knows? We'll see. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find uh, these and all our other articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, as I said at the start of the podcast, I'll repeat our email address in case you want to uh, contact us, have a go at us, compliment us, or just pass on some information. It's dtb at bmj.com. be great to hear from you. You can suggest topics for articles. You can offer to be a peer reviewer. Um, whatever you want to say, just email us at that, at that address. Uh, and again, a reminder that this year is our 60th anniversary and we have a special web page dedicated to that anniversary with a timeline of selected articles from the last 60 years and you can access them free of charge. 
and just remains for me to say thanks for listening um, and I hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for September's podcast. Bye.